Okay, by show of hands, who stayed up to midnight or later last night? Hold them up. All right, keep them up for a second so I can lay eyes on each one of you to make sure that you stay awake today. Okay, <laughs> very good. All right, now, uh, by show of hands, who, like me, wished you were in bed at 9 p.m. and just whatever, it's going to be the next day, but you had a house full of teenage boys and you got two hours of sleep last night. Any, anybody else? Okay, cool. Running on the Holy Spirit in Mountain Dew this morning. All right, so ready to go. Well, as, as we've already mentioned, welcome to 2023, the year of the goat. No, I am not talking about the Chinese zodiac sign. I'm talking about the greatest of all time which just so happens to coincide with the number 23, the number that represents the greatest player to ever play any sport, the one, the only, Michael Jeffrey Jordan. No matter what Eric Mitchell tries to convince you of, he's wrong. LeBron has never, nor will ever be, MJ. So... Got to get that out of the open real quick. The year of the goat. As Brad's already mentioned, man, I cannot think of a better way to start off 2023 than being at church with our family together. And this morning, we're going to step out of our series in Matthew to talk about some New Year priorities. Now, I'm personally not a huge fan of New Year's resolutions um, because I feel like People get bummed out whenever they hit speed bumps and they start beating themselves up, which is never really great. But I do love the renewed spirit and the renewed uh, attitude kind of that, that uh, a new year brings. So this morning, I want us to take that renewed spirit, that renewed attitude, and I want to marry it to our spiritual lives because this morning, I want to give you some words to think about as we strive to make 2023 the year of the GOAT, the greatest year of all time. Now, to do that, turn with me to the book of Judges. We're going to be in chapter 6 this morning. And we're going to conduct a brief overview of the life of Gideon. But before we get there, let me bring you up to speed on what's happening since we're just kind of landing right in the middle of this book so that we're all familiar with what's happening. Now, now some of you, this will sound very familiar to as we've covered some of these truths in our recent series as we walk through the book of Deuteronomy. Now, obviously, the book of Judges follows the book of Joshua. Now, at the end of our Deuteronomy series... We studied the death of Moses and how the Israelites were then handed over to the leadership of Joshua. So then we go from Deuteronomy into Joshua, and, and the book of Joshua is essentially the story of, of Joshua leading the rescued Israelite people into the promised land. Now, if you've ever studied the book of Joshua in depth, you'll notice that there's this continual theme of the Israelites capturing and, and settling into the promised land. And a huge part of this capturing and settling process was going into an area 
and removing all pagan people, destroying their man-made idols, their statues, all the things. That was part of the, of the capturing and the settling in process. And so the book of Joshua concludes with Joshua actually dividing the promised land among the 12, kind of between the 12 tribes of Israel and reminding them to stay true to the God who led them there. And so then, as we then venture from Joshua into the book of Judges, it opens with the death of Joshua. And then immediately, the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the 12 tribes, fails to drive out the Jebusites. And what this is, is this is an indication of a pattern of generational sin that completely consumes generations to come. You see, the entire book of Judges is in reality kind of a book of generational sin, kind of this cycle of sorts. This cycle, uh, I've got a picture, it kind of represents what, what this looks like for us, okay? So you can see here this, this cycle the Israelites are in. People do evil, and then God sends an oppressor. God sends someone, a tyrant or whatever. The, the Israelites then call out to God, to rescue them. And then God sends a deliverer in the form of a judge. And then God rescues the Israelites. And then eventually this judge who came that God sent to deliver, he dies and then Israel kind of returns to these idols. And then people do evil and, and the cycle continues. Now all of this is Important information for us to know and to remember as, as kind of we look at God's specific calling on one of these judges, Gideon. Now, I will say this up front. Gideon was far from perfect. He was not a perfect individual. But God used Gideon to strengthen his people during a time of great despair and discouragement. A matter of fact, when we open up to Judges chapter 6, we see the Israelites, they're actually hiding in caves from the Midianites. In other words, they're kind of in this consequence portion of this cycle that we've talked about. And, and, and we are about to see that Gideon is the one who God has chosen to bring them back to a restored relationship with him. And so I want us to read that plan together. So we're going to be in chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 11 and go through 16. Verse 11 says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel for the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites 
as one man. Now, just so we're clear on what God is calling Gideon to do here. You see, as we read through the book of Judges, you can see that when God's placing these judges in place, when he puts them in in power, he did so primarily for three reasons. One, he would put them in place to solidify their identity. In other words, remind them of who they belong to. And the second reason is he would put them in place is to begin the fight against the oppression of the enemies for their families. And then the third reason was to build this tight-knit group of believers with Christ as the center. And listen, this morning, I believe that we can take those same principles and apply them to our lives for this upcoming year. Because if we truly desire for 2023 to be the greatest year of all time, the, the greatest year of our lives, we would then be wise to do those same things. Solidify your identity in Christ, point your family to Christ, and then surround yourself with the people of Christ. We would be very wise to do that. So let's look at those three things and see what God can teach us about ourselves through Gideon. So. The greatest of all time, the GOAT principle number one, solidify your identity in Christ. Gideon could not effectively lead the people until he was positive of his identity in Christ. Now, a few interesting things occurred when, with this angel and when it shows in Gideon that really shows us how important Gideon was. Look back to verse 11. Notice that the angel came. The angel sat. And the angel appeared. All three of these are actions initiated by the angel. But secondly, notice where God met Gideon. At the bottom of a wine press. This was both a difficult and really humiliating place to meet. You know, generally, wheat was threshed out in open spaces, typically on a hilltop, so that the breeze would, would kind of blow the chaff away, but it was normally not threshed in a, a sunken place like a wine press. See, there's, there's a bit of there's a, there's a nugget of truth in there to should be an encouragement to us is that God always initiates interaction with us and meets us exactly where we are. It is his plan. It is his desire to be in a relationship with you. Not just a casual Sunday, check that off the list Relationship, No, like he desires a relationship where he is invited into every aspect of your life beginning exactly where you are. And herein lies the problem with many people. You see, many people that we encounter on a daily basis, many people like to kind of compartmentalize their lives, right? They're, they have their family, their family stays in this compartment, and then the work, their work is kind of in this compartment, and then over here is the church compartment, and, and, and we, you know, we like Jesus to stay there, but we really don't want him messing around with everything else. The problem with that type of faith 
It's his counterfeit. It's counterfeit. Now, I'm assuming that, that you've heard the term counterfeit before. It basically means, you know, something is fake, uh, but it's still pretty close to being the real thing. A lot of times this word is used to, uh, whenever we think of counterfeit, we immediately think about money. Uh, counterfeit, people making counterfeit money. Did you know, uh, I found this very interesting. Uh, in 1937, there was a gentleman by the name of er Emmerich Jutner. I've got, I think we have a picture of him. Emmerich Jutner, uh, his wife unexpectedly passed away whenever he was 61 years old. And this gentleman felt that he was too old to keep working in order to make money. So instead of going to work to make money, he started to literally make money. <laughs> like he started counterfeiting $1 bills, which is odd if we can just all be honest with one another. Like if we're gonna be counterfeiting money, I'm probably not going for a $1 bill, right? Like I'm, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna go all in. But no, this man was counterfeiting $1 bills. He was, listen to this, he was considered the most successful counterfeiter of modern times for 10 years the Secret Service agent searched for him. It was the most extensive and expensive counterfeit investigation in American history. But here's what's fascinating about this gentleman. His bills were so poorly done that the Secret Service thought that he was doing it on purpose to, pr to prank them. <laughs> they were that bad. He, he was just legitimately horrible. Like he spelled the name Washington wrong on the fake dollar bills. Now, eventually, this gentleman is, is busted, right? And after some questioning, he admits to his crime, and he said these words, they were only $1 bills. I never gave more than one of them to any one person, so nobody ever lost more than $1. That didn't work. He was arrested, <laughs> spent one year in jail, and was fined $1. Now, honestly, this gentleman and his fake $1 bills, you know, it's, it's funny, but it's really not that unique of a story, right? That all kinds of things have counterfeits. As a matter of fact, anything really that's worth anything probably has a counterfeit version floating around, right? Shoes, jewelry, um, clothes, all these things have counterfeit. But what's even more dangerous is there's a way that we can even do our faith counterfeit. Here's what I mean. Like we all could name people that seem to have like a very real relationship with God. Like you're like, man, that person right there, they've got a direct connection. They're like BFFs with God. Like I don't understand, but like you know when you meet that person that there's something going on there. But we also could name people that we can just see, you know what, their faith is pretty much what their parents' faith was and their parents' faith is pretty much what grandparents' was. They're just kind of modeling what was done because that's what we're supposed to do. 
These will be the same people who have not allowed Jesus to completely infiltrate every part of their life. They are completely fine with Jesus doing Jesus things in the Jesus box of their life, but they're not willing to open up that box and let it spill over to the rest of their lives. And so therefore, Jesus is really more like a kind of a get out of hell free card instead of a savior. The problem with this is, is it's, it's counterfeit. It means that, that these people have not truly given their life to Jesus. It's not real. It's, it's modeled after something else. It's, it's fake. Now, there's a lot of reasons people never go all in with Jesus, but a really common one is guilt. Right? We, we allow guilt to keep us away because we know what things are like at home when no one's watching. Like we know the thoughts that are running through our brains sometimes and, and, and we know the things that we've done in the past and we know the words that we've said, which then translates to thoughts like, well, there's no way that I could do this for the Lord. The Lord couldn't possibly use me for for this, and listen to me, if this is you, do me a favor, go back to verse 12 and look at the very first words that this angel speaks to Gideon when he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Your version may read mighty hero or mighty warrior. Listen to me, God knew exactly what Gideon was going to need in order to accomplish the task ahead of him. And he had already woven him together with these characteristics. But Gideon needed to be convinced. And the same is true for you, friend. You see, because of what Jesus did on the cross, your shame, your guilt, your condemnation, the things that keep you from going all in, the cross says that the Lord Jesus literally swaps those. He takes those and gives you his righteousness. So you're no longer identified by that guilt or shame or condemnation. God says, as a matter of fact, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The, the amount of detail that God put into you is absolutely astonishing. And why is that? It's because he loves you that much. Parents, grandparents, you totally get this, right? When you have that newborn child, or any of you, but right, you've ever held a newborn baby, no one's ever held a baby and been like, this thing's kind of ugly, right? No one's ever done that, right? Well, maybe when they first are born, but after that, like, no one ever, like, looks at these babies and they're like, no, you look at them and you're, you just marvel. Like, how many parents, you're like, I'm exhausted. This thing constantly eats and cries, but I can't do anything. I don't want to sleep when it's sleeping. I just want to stare at it because it's so fearfully and wonderfully made. We get that. Now take that. And, and that's the same way that the Lord sees us. And listen, if you want to have the greatest year of all, the, all time, you want to have a goat year, then we, like Gideon, must solidify our identity in Christ. He has to be everything. He has to be. And when we do this, you know what an added bonus will be? You will be better set up to move on to goat principle number two, which is to point your family to Christ. Point your family to Christ. You see, once you solidify your identity in Christ, you will also realize that he fearfully and wonderfully made your spouse too. You will realize that he has fearfully and wonderfully made your children. He has fearfully and wonderfully made that coworker that you're like, man, I don't want to go back to work this week and sit beside them. 
Like you will realize that he has fearfully and wonderfully made your parents and your siblings and, and he has fearfully and wonderfully made everything. And listen, it changes your perspective on everything and everyone. I mean, think about it. When is the last time that you sat before God and you just say, God, I, I praise you for, and you insert your wife's name, your husband's name, your kid's name. I, I praise you for them because you fearfully and wonderfully made them. You know what you will find? If you do this, the more you focus on the beauty of God's creation that is your husband or your wife, your kids or coworkers, whatever, the less you will focus on the things that frustrate you about these people. If you're constantly in a state of like, God, they are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are yours. That, that, you created them. If you are focused on that, then you can't, it's, it's going to cancel out the focusing on the negative. You know, men, when is the last time you've just said to your wife, like, sweetheart, I love fill in the blank about you. I just love this specific thing about you. Or ladies, like when, when's the last time you've told your husband what you love about him? Parents, grandparents, like do your kids, do your grandkids know that you're proud of them because they've got enough voices in this world telling them what they're doing wrong. And, and also like as parents, we can kind of get in these cycles, right? Of just focusing on the discipline and focusing on the correcting, but do they know that you're proud of them? I mean, after all, the Bible tells us to be imitators of Christ. And if we are to imitate Christ, then don't you think that we should love our family the way that he loves them? Like, I want to be a man who, who gives and speaks life into my children. And, and one of the, I don't want to speak death. I want to speak life. And one of, the, one of the scariest things for me personally in parenting is this fear of passing on my sin to my sons. Bringing that death upon them. You see, generational sin, if not conquered, will plague Hollis and Merrick as they grow. Instead of them growing into the men of God that April and I desire them so much to be. And listen, Gideon was dealing with the same issue. He's dealing with the same issue. His father was an idolater. He worshiped Baal. And listen to what God tells Gideon in, in verses 25 through 26. And this is, remember, that God has called Gideon. Gideon's first assignment then is coming in verses 25 and 26 when it says, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Listen, the, the importance of what God had just commanded Gideon to do cannot be overlooked. God had just called Gideon. He tells Gideon, hey, you are my man. You're the one who will lead the people into victory over the Midianites, but the first mission, and guys, listen, don't miss this. Your first mission is not that. No, no, no. 
If Gideon was to lead a reformation, then he had to begin in the place where he opened his eyes that morning, his home. Now, at first, this may seem a bit contrary to what the angel of the Lord said to him. I mean, after all, delivering his house from an idol wasn't the first logical step from delivering a nation from Midian, but this was a very necessary stepping stone. You see, until Israel was rid of her idols, external freedom from hardship would be at best temporary and superficial. The reality is, impacting our community for Christ cannot be achieved without it first starting at home for any of us. And God was showing Gideon that the only way to rid Israel of her idols and return to him was to start with the circle closest to him and spread outward. And how did Gideon respond? Look at verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by night, uh, to do it in the day, he did this at night. Gideon had been raised in an idol-worshiping family. His father was the keeper of the Baal altar in their town. Destroying these idols was not an easy task, but an absolutely necessary one. Priscilla Shower writes it this way, imagine how Gideon must have felt tearing down what his father had spent his lifetime building, teaching, and defending. With each stone that he and his servants dismantled, another layer of the ideology that had, been, that had overrun his family came unglued. This overnight idol demolishing wasn't affecting some random town and family he would never see again. This was a task he would feel, see, and endure the consequences of every day from that point on. You see, the stakes are often much higher when the mission field is so personal. But let me be real clear this morning. That's not an excuse. You want to do big things for God this year? Start at home. And listen, I realize that not everyone in here this morning is married or has children, but listen, if that is on your radar for one day, now is the time to start prepping yourself and your future home for that young man or young lady and those babies, right? Like this is an urgent issue and one that we oftentimes are blinded to because we write it off to, oh, that's just how I am. That's just how I was raised. That's just my, my dad was this way or my mom was this way. And, and like we just kind of write it off to like, well, that's just the way it is. Do, do you see characteristics in your children that are so you, it's scary, then change it. Tear down those bales in your life. Like Love your children more than you love your comfort. Billy Graham said it this way, many times it takes just one member of family to initiate the action to bring an entire family back. You want to do big things for God, start at home. Like I see it happening like, like, like this. Like We live at the beach, like we understand. We, we like going down to the beach, most of us anyway. We live here, it's beautiful, it's awesome. You get in the water, we know the danger of the ocean. We live here. We know the rules, right? 
It's not like we're a bunch of tourists. I mean, we, we know the dangers. We know how the currents work, right? We get in the ocean, throwing football. We're just hanging out with our friends, whatever. We get on some floats. We're just talking, hanging out, right? Again, we understand the dangers, but we're not focused on it. We're just out there in the water, enjoying our time. And what happens? We look up 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes later, and we are like 100 yards from where we started. Like, what, how, did that, how did that happen? Well, we, we understand that. And, and like, that's kind of how I see this idea of generational sin working in our lives. Like, we can identify the problem area. We, we know the dangers in it. But it's easier to brush it under the rug. And before you know it, we are caught in a current that is pulling our families farther and farther away from Christ. And this, friends, this is where we find our third and final principle that we're going to talk about this morning. Go principle number three is surround yourself with the people of Christ. You see, if you're in the ocean and you're drifting farther away, how much better is it to have someone on the shore reminding you of the potential danger? Like when our boys are in the ocean and they're out there playing with friends or whatever, April and I are on the shore most of the time screaming at them, come back, come back this way because we can see the danger. We see it happening. You know, isn't it interesting that whenever you hear a story from someone's journey towards God, you always hear about a relationship, not just a relationship with God, but a relationship with another person. And maybe you've experienced that too, someone that has invested into your life, that brought you to Christ, that modeled that for you. If we went around this room, we, every one of us could name a person, a relationship. And why is that? Here's the, the principle of this is simple. We are better together. To put it simply, the people around us affect our faith. And Gideon had experienced this as well. We saw this in verse 27 where he is gathering these people together to go tear down these idols we see this truth happening again later in chapter 6 when it's time to start fighting the Midianites. A community from all of these 12 tribes come together and they go to battle for the Lord. My point is this. We cannot win this battle in isolation. And if you think that you don't need a community of people, that you can do this on your own, then you are falling for a dangerous trick of the enemy. You don't have those godly voices in your life that can see the dangers and call those out, and you are in a very volatile state. And listen, that's true in both positive and negative ways. Just like the right people can move our faith in the right direction, the wrong ones can move our faith in the wrong direction. Now, the Bible actually talks about this in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Paul talks about the same thing in 1 Corinthians when he says first, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Here's what Paul's basically saying. Hey, if you want to move in a better direction, hang out with people who want the same thing. Because the wrong influences will impact you in ways that cause negative behaviors, negative outcomes. And, and just as the person who walks with the wise will be wise, the person who walks with fools will be foolish. Now, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. Yes, Jesus calls us to love everybody, for sure. And he calls us to spend time with people who aren't like us. I am 100% in that camp. 
But listen, that does not mean that we invite foolish influences into our inner circle. Which means, for those of you who are single, that means you don't have to date just anybody. Like, for, for those who are seeking counsel, this means you don't have to trust everybody's words. For those of you looking for parenting advice, this means you don't have to model your parenting after every person who's ever birthed a child. Love, yes. Follow in their footsteps? Maybe not. This is where wisdom comes in. You use Wisdom, stronger friends, makes you stronger. They sharpen us. They better at us at whatever we're doing, including our faith. They help us develop a faith that's more authentic and less counterfeit. And listen, this right here, this is the reason that we have connect groups at this church. Pastor Jim says this in just about every Discover Hillcrest. Like, if we as church leadership could physically make each of you do just one thing outside of your salvation, it would be join a connect group. Like every one of you, because we all need biblical community. Your own spiritual journey needs biblical community. Your family needs biblical community. Romans 12, four through five says it this way, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. So here's how we land the plane this morning. Encouraging you to get into a group like today, like right now. What better way to start your GOAT year than to getting into a group. And so in just a minute, we're going to dismiss. And I'm gonna challenge you to stop by our Next Step Center, which is right outside these doors. And you're going to find leadership from every single age group that will be able to share with you how you can plug into a group right now. So that means if you have children, there'll be someone from Hillcrest Preschool or Hillcrest Kids to share with you what it looks like to get your kids plugged in. From everything from like, what does it look like to, to check in? What are check in and out procedures? How do I know my baby's gonna be safe? What does that look like? What's the weekly schedule? Who's in the classroom? All those things, everything you need, they're gonna be there. If you have a teenager, there will be someone from Hillcrest students waiting on you, which today's an actually great day for that because we have a weekend retreat coming up for teenagers and registration just opened up this morning. So you can register your kids today. And, and, and parents, let me... Let me say this to you as loving as I can. This is your decision as parents, not your kid's decision. You see, God has placed you in their life as their authority figure. And you know better than they do. I know that's a shocker. You know better than they do. I want you to think about it from this perspective. This coming Thursday, our boys are going back to school like many of your kids. And with 100% certainty, I'm going to walk in their rooms at about 6.15 and I'm gonna go wake them up. And do you know what the first words out of their mouth is? It's not going to be 
Oh, I slept so great. I'm so fired up to go to school today. You know what their first words to me are gonna be? It's the same words that they say every single day is they're gonna say, I'm tired and I don't wanna go to school today. Can I stay home? To which I'm going to reply, as I do every day, I'm really sorry, go to bed earlier, get up, right? Now, why do I do that? Because if I let my kids, and I love them, right? If I let them dictate when they went to school based on their feelings, they would never go. And I know what's better for them. And plus, I don't want the county knocking on my door, right? Like those things, like I know what's better for them. Now, I want you to take that and I want you to multiply it by eternity. Some people would say, well, I don't want to force my kids to do anything spiritual. I want them to figure it out on their own. If I force this on them, they're going to walk away whenever they turn 18. They're leaving the church. They're never going to do anything with God again. So I'm just going to let them make the decision. And listen to me, you may be right. You may be absolutely right. You may force it on them, and at the age of 18 or whenever they move out of your home or fall out, whatever you do in your house, they may absolutely walk away from the Lord. They might. But they also might fall deeply in love with the Lord and commit the rest of their life to him. And I'm telling you, I would much rather when I give an account for those two boys sitting over there and I stand before the Lord, I would much rather say to him, Lord, I did everything I could do versus, well, Lord, I just wanted to figure it out. I didn't want to force it on them. Let me tell you something. I'm telling you this, not as a pastor of this, of this church. I'm telling you this as a father and I'm gonna get off my soapbox in just a second, but I'm telling you, the people in leadership, in our preschool and kids and student ministries, these are voices you want speaking into the life of your kids. These are the voices that you want. These are godly men and women who desire to partner with you in discipling your kids. And notice I said, partner. Partner with you. Because ultimately, discipling your children is your God-given responsibility. So set the example for them. You need community too. You need biblical community. So Pastor Heath is gonna be out here and he has got a list of adult groups for you guys to plug in, man. Where you can develop some friendships and accountability. Like they've got, we've got this like super cool, like it's January 1st, everyone's gonna start reading their Bible today, right? We got a cool little way for you guys to follow along with this that groups can do together. It's, it, you need this type of accountability. You need community. Friends, we cannot do this alone. Plain and simple, we need one another. You want to have the greatest year of all time? Solidify your identity in Christ. Point your family to Christ. And surround yourself with the people of Christ. And that will set you on a solid path for having a great year.